So we're at the midpoint of the semester, and we've been looking at this, this Old Testament book of Leviticus for the last six weeks, and we'll keep doing it for the next six weeks. And so if you haven't been with us, or really even if you have, let me just remind us that the book of Leviticus is primarily a book of laws that God revealed to his chosen people, Israel. He had rescued them from slavery and bondage in Egypt, and he, they were on the way to this land that he had promised to give, to give them, the promised land. And they were out in the wilderness, though, and they were wondering. And in the middle of that, God uh, meets with Moses and says, Moses, I'm going to use you to, to orient them and to organize them as a nation. And part of that national identity as being God's people is that they would have these laws. And these laws, they ranged over all sorts of things. We've looked at a number of those things already. But these things primarily had to do with this. How can a holy God exist and be a part of and exist in the middle of an unholy people? How can God, who who demands perfection in his presence, live amongst a people who are anything but perfect? It's like, how can oil and water mix? How can light and darkness coexist at the same time? How can Apple and Android work together? They just can't. Unless God does something about it. In Leviticus is God saying, I'm doing something about that. I have done something about that. Here's what it is. And all these rules and regulations are God saying, if you want to be with me, if you want to live in my presence, if you want the blessings of relationship with me, you have to follow these rules. But here's the thing. If you've been coming, you know this. If not, take my word for it. The rules and the laws were exhausting. They were demanding. They were um, overwhelming. They would affect your schedule. They would affect your bank statement. They would affect your diet. They would affect your social interactions and all kinds of other things. Now, God had given so many provisions about so many different things that, that really, if you did them all, you would be a superhero. And so that leaves the rest of us knowing that we had never done all the things that he had required of us. And so even with all the sacrifices that we would offer for the things we didn't do, there were still other things that we didn't offer the sacrifices for that we didn't even know that we didn't do. And so the question is, what do we do about those things? Like how can we, with, with our big failings or our little failings, how can we even do this, God? How can we be in relationship with you? And his giant answer to that question, it comes right here at the middle. It's the crux of the book of Leviticus. It is called the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement answers that for us. The million-dollar question for us then in Tulsa in 2018 is, what does that mean for me? I'm struggling with friendships. I'm in tears. I'm so anxious. My parents are upset with me. I'm upset with me. Why can't we talk about something that matters, Brent? Why can't we spend this next 30 minutes and talk about something that means anything for my life? And friends, I just want to tell you, here's my hook for you tonight. If you will consider what this passage is offering, it touches the most profound issues of your life. What is happening in the Day of Atonement and what will happen in Jesus' Day of Atonement that we'll look at fundamentally has the ability and the power to affect everything about you. So that's my proposition. Let's see how it goes. Leviticus 16, beginning verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. 
And the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. But in this way, Aaron's son shall come into the holy place with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body. And he shall tie down the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goats on the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. Let me hit pause for just a second. The word Azazel, scholars are a little bit, they don't exactly know what it means. Um, but there is a possible translation that I'm going to stick with that means, um, it just means a goat that was released. So it kind of gets formalized as a name here, but most scholars tend to think it's just descriptive of this goat being released. Back on, verse 11. Aaron shall present the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. He shall kill the bull as a sin offering for himself, and he shall take a censer full of coals of fire from before the altar before the Lord, and two handfuls of sweet incense beaten small, and he shall bring it inside the veil and put the incense on the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is over the testimony so that he does not die. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the front of the mercy seat on the east side. In front of the mercy seat, he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Then he shall kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull, sprinkling over the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Thus he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleanness. No one may be in the tent of meeting from the time he enters to make atonement in the holy place until he comes out and has made atonement for himself and for his house and for all the assembly of Israel. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. And he shall take some of the blood of the bull and some of the blood of the goat and put it on the horns of the altar all around. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood on it with his fingers seven times and cleanse it and consecrate it from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. And when he has made an end of atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting in the altar, he shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall, put that, he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Down in verse 30. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. This is God's word. This passage 
is all about the way that God would atone for sin. Now, that word atonement just means pay for or cover or wipe clean people's guilt and sin. But here's something I know. Most of us in this room on most days, we don't really feel guilty for our sin. We just don't. We don't feel guilty for our sin. We know wrongdoing when we see it in a big way, right? We, we know that Harvey Weinstein was wrong in how he treated women out in Hollywood and the culture he created in his company. You know it's wrong when you see it in all sorts of other places, right? We know sexual misconduct and stuff, and we, it's, it's ugly and it's wrong. We know, um, we know when, when a school shooting happens, we know that it's wrong. Every time it's wrong, and we hate it, and we cry out, and we're hurt, and we're rightly frustrated, angered. We should be. God help our nation. We know that when we see white supremacists uh, lining up and, and calling out the things they call out into the TV camera and in the face of the onlookers, and even to themselves, even if they did it in their quiet of their room, we know that those things are ugly. But most of us, most days of the year, most hours of the day, we aren't doing those kinds of things that I know of. And so I'm not saying that there doesn't exist guilt out there. I'm just saying most of the time we just don't feel that. The issues of our lives seem a lot smaller than that. And most of the time, the things that we really struggle with are are feeling like we're not living up to our potential, that I could work harder than I do that I could uh, be performing better in that class than I am. I could go see the teacher more than I do. I could do more homework than I do. Um, You could or or should be smarter or try harder. You could probably dress up a little nicer, maybe put yourself together a little bit more. Guys, I'm just kidding. Um, But, like, those things aren't that religious in nature, most of them. They're just kind of the stuff of life. And because of that, we don't... We don't feel guilty like I've done something wrong. But here's what I'm going to suggest. Though we don't feel guilt, we are swimming in our shame. We are swimming in this pervasive idea that I'm just not enough. My day-to-day experience and the things that I know I'm not doing, that I'm not being this over here or acting this way over here, like, you feel bad about that, and that, that experience has you kind of looking inward. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to suggest it drives you way inward. And because of that, is it any reason at all that most of us spend countless hours a day, certainly countless hours a week, in isolation, in our rooms, behind a screen, not because that show you just binged 40 episodes of in the last five days is so interesting, But it's because you're trying to escape from what you feel to be true about your life. When you you stay up till 4 a.m. three nights in a row or a semester in a row, playing that video game with people around the world that you don't actually know, that's much less about the video game than it is about you trying to run from the you in the mirror or you trying to get away from the you that has to lay your head on the pillow late at night. We're running from the thing that we know that we are. It's the same thing with alcohol and the way we use that. It's the same thing with some of us, the way we use relationships. We could go on and on. My point is this. We are a people who know that we're not right. 
We just don't always know how to talk about that. We know that something's wrong with us, and it's not doesn't take much to look around the world and say something's wrong in the world. But we just don't readily call it guilt. We don't know what to do with that. And the Day of Atonement is all about that. The first thing we're going to see is that it was needed. I hinted at it above, but I'm just going to be explicit about it here. The Day of Atonement for the people of Israel back then, it was a definitive way... For God's people to know that they had been forgiven. It was a definitive way for them to know that their sin had been paid for fully. Now, here's what's interesting is that even as we've looked at the last few weeks, there were all kinds of other sacrifices going on in Israel. I mean, every day there were lots of different sacrifices that would have been happening all the time. But in the midst of that, the volume and specificity of these laws would have left even the most strict observer of all these laws, it would have left him or her with things they didn't do. What we might call sins of omission, right? There's the sins of commission, the things you committed and actually did, but sins of omission that none of us are loving others as much as we possibly could, and so we've left things undone. Well, you had to atone, you had to do something with that. And the Day of Atonement stood in there and said, this is what that day is for. It takes care of everything that you haven't necessarily known you've done. It's for everything that's been left undone. Think about this. Let's think of how how big data works. I may just be overly skeptical in this, but I think I'm a realist. Don't we all? Um, I think that basically someone out there knows everything about me. They know my social security number, they know my credit card numbers, they know all my addresses, they know my mother's maiden name, they know my childhood pets, they know how much I make, <laughs> they know um, <laughs> they know it all. Like, I just don't think that's a secret to me. And that's kind of, like, if we think about that, that's kind of scary because if that exists out there that company or that person, uh, they, they know everything about them. They know all my fears. They could see my search histories. They know my fetishes. They know what I'm about. They know all my failures. They, they know everything about me in some ways. And that, that person or that company, if they have all that information on me or on you, they have incredible power over you. Why? Because they could go public with it. What if someone had your text string and had every conversation, had your Snapchat history, had it all, your your Google searches put together and they faced outward to the world and put it on a projector screen? What would that do to you? It would crush you. Because it would speak what's true about you. And what I want to suggest is that something more real and more terrifying than big data exists, and he always has, In the Old Testament, they would have called him Yahweh, God. In the New Testament, we call him Jesus. He is eternal. And from eternity past into eternity future, he knows everything there is to know about everything, and that means you. And so God knows us exhaustively. He knows every single thing about every single part of our life. And that should terrify us. That should at least humble us. And friends, if, we're, if we'll be honest for just a second, that should cause us to say, I need something to be done about that. 
I got to clear that cash. I've got to get that information out of here somehow. And the day of atonement was that. It was needed for that. It was God's way of saying, I'm clearing, I'm clearing it out. I'm wiping the chalkboard clean. I am purging your history. I'm spring cleaning your house. I'm getting out all the yuck of your life on this day. Matthew 5, 48. Jesus says, right, let me back up before I say that. So we think, okay, so that's God back then, right? He demanded perfection, but whew, thank goodness Jesus has come along. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48. He says the standard still exists. Be perfect. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, he says. Look, y'all, the Day of Atonement was back then as a means to purge them from all their guilt and sin and all the yuck and all the stuff they hadn't done or the bad things they did. God does not ever change the standard. He still says, if you want to be near to me, you've got to be perfect. And Jesus reinforces that just so we can know. And if those things are true, then we are all in trouble. And the psalmist knew that. Psalm 130 verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should keep track of of iniquities, who can stand before you? The psalmist understood that. That if God absolutely knows everything, we are brought to our knees begging for his mercy. So what did the Day of Atonement do? The very next verse in that psalmist says, verse 4, Psalm 30, verse 4, 130, verse 4, says, But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. So the Day of Atonement was the way that God most visibly and tangibly communicated to his people, you are forgiven. Let's take a look at how this all went down. The first thing that happened in these verses, and I'm not going to reread them because that would be forever. But it says that the, the high priest had to make preparation, um, preparation and purification for himself and his house before he went in. Now, why is that? It's because the high priest, though he was a unique person who had unique privileges at the tabernacle, he was a person. He was a man like you and me. And so he had his own sin to deal with. And so he had, to, he had to make an offering and go in there and sprinkle the blood and do this and that and go out there and sprinkle the blood and do this and that. He had to do that for himself, but he had to prepare himself even to do that. So he wears these special clothes and does all of that. The next two things are a bit more poignant. The next thing that would happen is, uh, is captured in verses 11 through 19. Uh, sorry, 20 through 22. Well, 11 through 22, actually. Let's imagine the graphic nature of what's happening here. So the high priest is out there in front of the, the Holy of Holies, in front of the, the tabernacle proper, and he slaughters the first animal, the bull for himself and his family. And he, imp- he enters the tabernacle out of sight. Okay, there is a series of doors and curtains and gates and these kind of things. And so he enters in there out of sight. Now, here's why this would have gripped them, but it doesn't grip us. It would have gripped them because... Of what the passage starts out saying. Look right there at the beginning of 16. It starts right out saying, like, oh, by way of reminder, Aaron's sons, Nahab and Abihu, um, they died when they went to that place. And so as Aaron trots into there with his fresh little white clothes on, everybody in the audience and the crowd and the congregation is wondering, is he going to come out? Is he going to make it out? Did he do all the right things rightly before he went in there? 
And so there would have been this great tension and buildup waiting for him to come out. And the passage says that he did, and he came out. And what does he do next? He gets the first of the two goats that were to be offered on behalf of the people. And so he takes that first goat and he slits his throat, takes the blood, puts it on the altar, then takes some of that blood back into the Holy of Holies. And he goes all the way into the most holy place and he takes that blood and he sprinkles it on the the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. That's just the, that's not just, that is the place where God was said to have dwelled, where God said, I'm going to be right there. And so when he takes the people's blood, signified through this goat's blood, and puts it on the mercy seat, he's, in essence, taking their sin right up to God and saying, God, this is the sin of the people. Will you accept it instead of their their blood? Will you accept this blood? And if he would come out, that would signify that, yes, God accepted it. If he wouldn't, that meant no. And so the tension would have built. He takes their blood, the blood of their goat inside of there, and he comes out. And that would have been amazing because imagine if you're in the audience, you're in the crowd, and you're saying, oh, my God, thank God. He forgave my sins of this year. But there's more going on in the passage than that. Look at what happens with this other goat. Now, we live in a visual age. Right? We look at screens all the time. We look at pictures. We're fascinated slash obsessed with them. But we all have to admit that experiencing something in person is better than just seeing it on a screen. It's why you are willing to pay for travel. It's the whole travel industry. It's not merely enough to see it in a picture. I want to touch that water. I want to eat that mango. I want to go into the heart of sub-Saharan Africa. I want to do it. I want to be there. I want to feel the feels. But this people, there they were. And so they had just seen that, and that was awesome. But here's the second goat, and what happens? Read right there. It said that the the high priest took his hands and put them on the head of the second goat. And what does it say? It says, all of the iniquities and all of the transgressions and all of the sins were placed on the head of this second goat. And what happens next? He sends the goat out of not just the tabernacle. He sends it all the way out of the camp. He sends it out into the wilderness as if to say, Yes, I've atoned for your sins, but I've done more than that. I've taken them all the way away from you. That everything that has defiled you, I have not only paid for it and atoned for it, I have removed it as far from you as I can possibly remove it from you. Psalm 103 says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed your transgressions from you. And so when the people are seeing this this act, this, this drama unfold, their hearts are warmed because they can see and feel and experience that their sin has been taken care of. There's nothing else they can do. There's nothing else that has to be done. God has made the way. So look, I I don't know exactly where you are tonight. I don't know where you stand in relation to Jesus and what you think about all this. But I promise you this. There is not one of you in here that doesn't want that experience. To know that everything that's most wrong with you can be taken from you. Everything that you fear is true about you, which probably is true about you, 
has a way of, of being removed from you. Think about it like this. When you know that you're wrong, that you're caught, and there's no excuses you can make, there's nobody else you can blame it on, what do you want to do? You want to disappear. You want to run away. You want to not exist anymore. You want to crawl under your bed or drive away in your car. You want to get out. When I was in college, um, some of y'all heard this story because it's one of my most embarrassing stories. Um, I was in college. I took a girl on a date to a restaurant in Oklahoma City. And it was a really a cool restaurant. It was on the edge of a lake called Lake Hefner. And we had a great dinner. It was kind of a, I don't know, like Caribbean place. I think it had jerk chicken or I don't know, something. Uh, we were going to go see a movie after that because I'm a gentleman. And not really because I'm very unoriginal. Anyhow, uh, but I, I stepped into the restroom after dinner and was going to go to the restroom there. So we'd go on to the movies. Well, without going into graphic detail... Uh, something about dinner, that jerk chicken, didn't exactly set well with my stomach. And when I was in the restroom, I had what they call an accident. And uh, went number two in my pants. And so, true story. It is the month of May before school ended. It's summertime. I've got really light clothes on, really light pair of pants on. Um... It was awful. It was awful. I couldn't do anything. I wanted to tie cinder blocks on my feet and go jump in that lake. That's what I wanted to do. But what I had to do was walk out the door and face my worst fears named Carissa (laughs) and say, we need to go back to Norman. We have to go back to campus. I've got to go home. All right, true story. And a ridiculous way of making the point. That's how we feel about most of our lives, those things we want to remain hidden, that we want to keep unseen for everyone else's eyes. We just want to disappear. And friends, when that goat got to run away, and when, when the high priest sent that goat out outside the camp, all of your hopes and dreams came alive because you realized what's most true about me has just been realized and has been given to something else and it's been taken care of. And because of that, it's not hard to understand why this day was everything for them. It was. It was everything. It was the biggest day of their year. And I want to tell you that many, many years later, there would be another big day that happened. It was on a Friday. And it wasn't just an innocent animal that went to be sacrificed. But it was an innocent man. Look, it's Jesus. Listen how Peter, one of Jesus' friends, and one of his disciples says it. Second, uh, 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And that's awesome. That's the atonement that Jesus got our sin. We get his righteousness. He atones for it. Yay, awesome. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Do you see that? 
Friends, a lot of times when we think of Jesus dying on the cross, we get the first half of this right. He does. He atones for our sin. But did you notice that He is atoning for our sin outside of the gate of Jerusalem? What's happening? He's being cast out for us. He's taking our sin from us. He's propitiating our sin. He's paying for it, but He's expiating our sin. He's taking it from us. It's the best news in the world. It's the gospel. That's what happens is that God gives Jesus our sin. We get His righteousness. We call it Good Friday. It was a bad day for Jesus, but we call it Good Friday. And if you're in Him, if you're in Him, it's your big day. The Day of Atonement was their big day. If you're in Christ, Good Friday was your big day. Lastly, I want us to see tonight what this means for us. So the Day of Atonement and the cross of Christ, it gives us a way to frame what's wrong with us and what's wrong in the world. Because here's what's true. The gospel message, just as that message here in Leviticus, the gospel message doesn't coddle us, and it doesn't just like say, oh, you're really fine. You just need to live up to your potential and kind of go be a better you and self-actualize on all these things. No, the gospel message actually affirms that you are selfish to the core. And it looks, it's big data. It looks and says, yeah, I see all of it, and you can't get rid of it. You, uh, you can't get it. You can't run from it. You can't do something about it. But I can. Rather than being cast out, Jesus was for us. Rather than having to atone for our own sins and be better or try harder or be sorry enough for the things we've done, He atones for us. And so to have faith in Jesus means that we get to be joined to Him. And when we're joined to Him, we're joined to everyone else who's joined to Him. And so not only are we not alone anymore, we're brought into community. Not only are we forgiven, we're forgiven alongside these other people. And so we have these relationships where we don't have to hide anymore. We don't have to act like, oh, I'm fine all the time and I've just always been great. How's your life? Great. Glad to hear it. Like, no. If you're in Christ, you can look yourself and others in the mirror and say, My life is a train wreck. And look what Jesus has done with me. And look at how he's still doing it. I'm a work in progress. I'm still a train wreck. But I have found a God who has forgiven me. And who has not ignored my sin. Has taken it seriously and yet has taken it from me. Look, and as I see it, that has three huge applications for us. Then we're done. The first one is that you can be objectively reconciled and accepted by a still holy God who still demands perfection. That was a big deal for them back then on this day. Friends, you can look at Jesus at the cross and say it was a big deal for Him too. And it can be a big deal for you. That you can know, that you can know, that you can know that your sin has been paid for and it has been taken from you as far as the east is from the west. You can know that. The second thing is that you can, it means that you can take risks. What do I mean by that? I mean that, that if you are right with God, then you're not just one of His people, you're part of His family. And if you're part of his, if you're part of his family, that that begins to transform who you think you are. It begins to transform your identity. 
And so that means that you can, you can be more creative. You can try new things, things that you might fail at. Because guess what? Your potential failure doesn't, doesn't touch who you are. You're a child of God. You are loved by the creator of the universe. That matters more than whether or not you're good at rock wall climbing. It just does. It matters more than whether she says yes or no if you ask her out. It just does. It has to. It means that you can be willing to, to sacrifice something that might be good, like money or your time, for the good of someone else. Why and how? Well, because in the gospel you have an inheritance that is going to be way more than anything we can imagine right now. So you can take a risk and you can give some away or support one of your friends going to the Ukraine or anything. And it also means that you can be less selfish. You can seek to build others up instead of just trying to consume them and crawl all over them and try to make yourself look better than them so that others will look at you and say, oh, you're really cool. Like, really? Is that what we're after? Is just to be cool? It is. And Jesus is saying, let me free you from that. There's something so much better. And the third thing we see in this is that you can rest in what Jesus has done for you. You can rest physically. You can actually rest. An A or a C doesn't define who you are. So you can stop studying. For some of you, you can start studying. But you can rest from the thing you've been doing that's been defining you. Secondly, you can rest socially. You can stop trying to craft your perfect image before others. You can admit that that's selfish. And you can ask Jesus to help you be with you to help you be okay with who He's made you to be. Because here's what's true: take this from a professional image crafter for about the last thirty years. That when you try and spend all your effort, when you spend all your effort crafting an image so that others will look at you in some way and say, "Oh, wow, you're really accomplished. You're really well spoken. You're really a good pastor. You're really a good friend. You're really a good husband, a good father. You're really good at remodeling houses." Trust me, I've been at this a while. Here's the thing. When you try to craft an image and you're begging people to like that version of you, even if they do, it's not enough. Why? Because it's not the real you. It's an image. It's a fake you. So you're still lonely. So the gospel invites us to be more real about who we are and to ask people to step into that. And even if they don't, that's okay. Jesus loves you. Another way you can rest is you can rest mentally. Now, I mentioned earlier that we're out, that we're often our own worst critics, right? It's not that we feel guilty from all these big, ugly things. So many of us live under this ceaseless perfectionism. It is this endless, constant thing that exists between these two fingers right here, between both ends, both, both ears, and it is all day, every day. And it is demanding that you do more and that you be more and that you do better and be better. But let me ask you a couple questions. And these are real questions. Who gets to decide if you've ever done enough? Who gets to decide when enough is enough? Who gets to decide if your life has mattered enough? Where does that end? And when does that verdict finally get rendered? When will you ever know if you've done enough or performed enough or been enough? 
Outside of Jesus, I don't know. But with Christ, let me show you how he answers those. In Jesus, he says, I've done enough for you. So you can stop trying. You can stop trying to justify your existence by doing all the many things you're doing. I've done enough for you. He says, you matter because I say you matter. You're worth something because I say you're worth something. You're worth something to me. I was willing to give my life for you. That means you matter. And when does that verdict get cast? Jesus says, in my death, in my death, the verdict has already been rendered. You're forgiven. And so let me look really personally at you for just a second. When you say things like or think things like, yeah, but I just can't forgive myself. Or I'm my own worst critic. We say that as a means of feeding those perfectionistic tendencies. But let's just call them for what they are. It's pride. It is old-fashioned, straight-down-the-alley pride. Because what you're saying in that is, I'm not going to forgive myself, and what I think about me matters more than what God thinks about me. And friends, that's just one more sin you need to throw onto that goat and say, take that away from me. Jesus atoned for that one too because it's ugly and it's killing me. So let me tell you this. Instead of killing yourself with those sorts of thoughts... Would you embrace the the God who, who willingly gave his life so that you can have life and stop dying on the inside? Jesus came for you to give you that life and to get you off this performance, perfectionistic treadmill that we're all on. And here's the thing. You don't have to do anything for it. You just receive it and say, God, I want that to be true of me right now. And it can be. Let's pray.